You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Hi everyone, it's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse Podcast. I'm just popping in your ears briefly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all over the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend that tends to focus on Indigenous texts and Subversive Seminary during the week which focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group who are currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the Vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We record these episodes in community and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate by being part of our Patreon community. If you're one of our patrons, you can listen to extended conversations with extra questions included such as this. How the word itself is never in scripture. It's Gehenna for the most part. Most uses of either Gehenna or Hades. There's no concept of hell in the Old Testament at all in the Hebrew scriptures. There's no concept of hell in Paul at all. And I don't really think there's a concept of eternal conscious torment with Jesus either. Because when you're talking to Hena, you're talking about where all the bodies were, were burnt up. First of all, it was where people sacrificed their children in the fire to Molech in that valley. It's Gehenna is a valley outside the city of Jerusalem. Um, and Later on, it was where they dumped all the bodies that were burnt up after certain wars. And then later on, and this is contested by some, but later on then, in the time of Jesus, it was a garbage heap, a garbage dump, where people would go dump all their garbage and it would burn continually. There were maggots all over. It was outside the walls, which is another place you used to not ever want to go. And so you'd go outside the walls to dump your garbage and it would be a horrible, ooh, you know, dumping your garbage out there. And so Jesus is using these, it was like the outer darkness right outside the walls. And so Jesus is using these um, sayings hyperbolically in order to shock the people into listening to what he's saying. And they knew he was talking about the garbage heap outside in the Valley of Gehenna. They knew the history of that valley. And from my perspective, at least, they never would have thought he was talking about some sort of eternal conscious torment. So that's just a little example of what you'll get if you're part of our Patreon community. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you follow, rate and review this episode in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the following episode. Well, I am excited to introduce our guest for today. It is Benjamin Myers. He's an Australian theologian who is the director of the Millis Institute at the Christian Heritage College in Brisbane and a research fellow of the Center for Public and Contextual Theology at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Myers specializes in systematic theology, English literature, and the history of ideas. He has published widely in theology, literature, and the history of Christian thought. His current research focuses on poetry and theology in the 17th century, especially George Herbert and John Milton. His most recent book is The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism. Uh, welcome to Inverse Podcast. Thanks so much, Drew. All of that was true, except that I'm now actually with the Graduate Research School at Alpha Crucis. So uh, thanks thanks for having me here today. Yeah, and you know, I had just read that somewhere else and then in this bio, somehow I still uh, read the old one. But it is, thank you for that correction. 
It is my fault because Jared asked me for an up-to-date bio and I'm still planning to send it, but it's too, I see it's too late for that. So don't worry. <laughs> That's all right. Well, we're just grateful to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Ben, let's jump straight in. When and how do you first remember hearing the gospel um, and or atonement being explained? Um, thanks, Jared. I, I, my earliest Christian memories, uh, I was brought up in a Pentecostal uh, environment. Um, I literally remember being underneath those plastic chairs the church met in this sort of upstairs community hall might have been part of a school or something and I remember being so small that I'm sitting on the ground underneath one of these plastic chairs while the ribbons and tambourines are going all around me so I grew up in that sort of environment <laughs> on a tropical island actually up in North Queensland um, the thing I I do have some memories of, of having the meaning of the cross and the atonement presented to me at a later age, but my earlier memories, and I think the more formative ones, were a general atmosphere of gloom that descended upon the Christian assembly only on one occasion, and that was when the cross uh, was going to be talked about the rest of the time this was a sort of upbeat it was a bit more Jesus people than Pentecostal probably such an upbeat vibrant um, uh, liberating sort of culture within this church community only on special occasions let's say when you were having the Lord's Supper and someone was going to explain to you the meaning of Jesus death now <laughs> the piano goes to minor keys now we get a narrative uh, of how poorly Jesus was treated, how, how great his sufferings were, how um, terribly bad we should feel about having uh, been responsible for all this. Um, and that continued through most of my childhood. My experience was not primarily thinking about the cross theologically in terms of a particular doctrine or theory of the mm -hmm. atonement. It was a, a minor key that would play within my heart whenever I thought or heard about the cross, whenever the children's Bibles had a picture of the cross. I, I felt that something terribly tragic and, and pitiful um, had happened here. My, it, it was funny because after Holy Communion, you get back into singing about Jesus, the liberator, Jesus, our joy, um, uh, the, uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. We, we sang so many biblical songs about triumph and victory, um, but that didn't seem to integrate with, with the uh, a, a theology that, that somehow isolated the death of Jesus from his resurrection, mm -hmm. isolated the death of Jesus from the incarnation. It was just a bad thing that had happened. And it's strange for a little boy, five or six years old, to feel so much pity for Jesus. But I think that is pretty much uh, how it affected me. I just felt sorry for him. I wished he had a better deal. Um, so that's, that's not exactly answering your question, but that's the much more predominant thing that comes to mind when I think of how I understood the death of Jesus growing up. I can tell you an atonement theology story as well, if you want to hear it, but Please, Ben. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Okay. Here's, here's when I remember actually 
understanding the atonement and having it explained to me. And some, some of you may know about this if you're of a similar age. I should look this up because it's probably got a name. I've no idea what it was called, but there was a, an evangelization tool that someone had developed, which uh, was involved a little stapled book. I believe it was cardboard. It might've been felt, I don't know. And there were no words. It was just a color for each page. Uh, I see some people nodding. Is there a name for that? I see that hand. Does anyone know what that's called? And it was like the color gospel or something. Right. And the, go the gospel in colors. That's it. The gospel in colors. I do remember being at Sunday school and I suppose I might've been five years old or something. And I remember the Sunday school teacher uh, presenting this to us. And it was so visual. I was probably at a pre-reading age because it impressed me so much to be able to read in quote marks, this book that was in front of me. Um, as well as feeling terribly smart, though, I did sort of come under a deep uh, inner conviction that there was something true here and something important. And here's how it goes. From what I remember, this is, this is funny that maybe 35 years or more ago, I still remember this book quite clearly. I might get some of the pages wrong. I've never seen one since. Um, I remember that there was green for the Garden of Eden. God made a beautiful flourishing world and everything grows and had life. I remember there was um, uh, with, you may have to forgive the sort of racial overtones of this from, from white. I was about to ask Ben, is this when your yeah. interest in James Cone developed? <laughs> yeah. Uh, black was the color for sin. Um, uh, I don't know why black was chosen, but it's quite a fascinating uh, choice. Red was the color of God dealing with our sin by washing it away in Jesus's blood. Um, there was probably something else there. I would have liked a blue page for the waters of baptism. I don't know if they had that, but I remember it ended with gold uh, where they've actually used gold paint somehow. So the, the, the page shines and this is a depiction, I think of the coming glory that can now be ours because we have passed through the blood. That was something more like an atonement theory, an atonement theology. Um, and I think the one I was more used to growing up as well was this sense of a cleansing, almost as if you were to be baptized in that blood. I'm not sure it was explained in a, in a theologically compelling way, but if you, if you grow up in the church and the, and, and, the Christian story is your main paradigm for experiencing reality. It makes perfect sense to say that someone would die and their blood would be a bath that you would be washed in. And as a result of that, all the, the dirt, I suppose black was meant to symbolize dirt. I've, I've, I've fallen in the mud and I need to be clean. I, 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 I think that might've been the intention. Um, so that's, that's the earliest time I remember hearing something like the gospel story. And I even remember a, a sort of inner movement of my heart saying, if not quite saying yes to God, at least thinking I would like to say yes to this. This is important. This is true. This is giving me access to something, uh, something big. Not exactly a violent atonement theology, although I'm sure the people teaching me this all had a penal substitution read type of view, but somehow that wasn't the predominant language in the type of community 
uh, where I grew up. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Now, I think I have I, I when you started talking about this color book gospel, I had this vague recollection of someone coming to our church doing as like a guest and doing this for like Sunday school or something. So that vaguely reminds me of of um, something that we experienced as well. And I'm not surprised. I mean, I think that there's no question that in the West, um, blackness and darkness and sin and all that stuff were bound and pressed together, right? Um, so there's, it's not a surprise that that language was there. But um, but yeah, the washed in the blood, I mean, that was certainly in the Black Baptist context, certainly um, themes that were still very alive, certainly in my upbringing as well. I'm and, really, and Drew, it just got it yeah. just got more sinister because, as you mentioned, yeah. I remembered a page. I, I I just it just came back into my memory. There was white as well. Not only was right. black bad, white, white was purity, your, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite quite uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's I mean, all these images. There's it's not accidental the way that the language was being used as it was moving from lightness to whiteness, right? In terms of just the shifting of theological categories in a racial imagination. So yeah, but um, I'm really interested in, as you're thinking about both that earliest and, uh, and maybe a few, as years go on within the community, like how would you understand how God is being depicted, how discipleship is being depicted, how um, are you seeing them and is God being depicted in such ways that God is seen as violent and retributive or nonviolent, restorative, discipleship in either of those. I'm curious um, if, if those categories were meaningful for what you were experiencing and encountering. Not as much as you might think. And I'm sorry if I'm a poor choice for this series. I, I've listened to the other episodes uh, with, with great interest. And, and I feel like it, it could be growing up in an Australian church context where mm -hmm. Christianity is a bit less partisan, perhaps, and a bit less ideologically mm. divided um uh, it's still partisan and ideologically divided but not when you compare it to the church in the united states um uh, doctrine doesn't get weaponized to the same degree in australia so ha having said that i i think although definitely the conception of atonement was we deserved punishment it was it was it was straightforwardly penal. We deserved punishment. Uh, we should have died and been punished forever for our sins. Uh, Jesus took our place and he suffered for our sins, although, although that was the theology. I think if I can just talk about the way it affected me as a child, purely subjective, it, it made me not so much scared of God's wrath. I believed in God's wrath, I knew it was true. I knew I deserved it, just like every little boy does. Um, uh, I, I, I was convinced of it without anyone needing to do much reasoning. But the overall effect, I think, it made me frightened, not of wrath. It made me sort of frightened of love. God's love was presented in such, uh, how can I say it? it? It's as if you'd been given... So I've just come into the world. I haven't done any sins yet. I'm looking forward to it when I get older. I'm, I'm five, six, seven <laughs> years old. I haven't, we, we would also, it was also a church marked by dramatic testimony. If you've yeah. been in that type of church environment, 
every Sunday there's someone who just got out of prison, someone who That's just right. got off of drugs, someone who yeah. just stopped being a prostitute, yeah. someone who just um, uh, was given a new house after their last one burned down. Always dramatic, world-altering stuff, yeah. always involving a generous, salacious dose of human depravity. Um, and I... Without Which having no doubt was part of the entertainment on this little island, right, Ben? Oh, absolutely. You 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 can learn so much about uh, your neighbours when you're all giving testimonies <laughs> and 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 confessing, and it, it's it is genuinely moving. I think the testimony is a brilliant sort of liturgical tradition. It is genuinely moving and important to hear the stories of of how people's lives have um, opened up in some way to the grace of God in Christ. Uh, but yeah, there's a salacious entertainment side to it as well, for sure. Um, uh, I think that it made me feel a bit like this. If, if you're a little boy and you are told that before you were born, someone made a horrendous catastrophic sacrifice for your sake and that every day of your life, as long as you live, you are obligated to repay that in some way, to take it as your point of departure, to live in the light of it. Uh, this, this is all perfectly true in a way. Uh, we, we, we do have this obligation. We, we, uh, but, but the way it affected me, I think, was, was a, a feeling of, if, if I could have gone back in time and made Jesus never exist, I would have. I wished it hadn't happened. I, I, I so pitied him for, for what happened on the cross. Mm. I didn't think it was particularly worth it just to wash me of my sins um, or to help the old lady at church out so that she could give her testimony. It, 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 it felt out of proportion. And I think this was linked to the huge sense of emotional pathos and pain with which the passion narrative was always brought before my eyes. So in a strange way, it was not, divine violence but divine love that sort of alienated me from the christian faith as a child and it took me a long time until I, at the end of my teenage years really when i reluctantly almost reluctantly as it were sort of opened my heart to it and said well if this is true i might as well stop running away from it if if, if this is true uh, I might as well say yes to the person of Jesus instead of just trying to find ever more subtle ways to hide. Um, so I don't think, bit, bit, of, bit of a long story, but that was the psychology of it for me. I was never scared of God's wrath because the, the, the cross was presented so convincingly, I suppose, as this solution. You're never going back to wrath. It's just that you're going to have all sorts of obligations attached to you for the rest of your life because of this sacrifice, yeah. this, this exchange, this substitution. Then um, in this series, we have uh, um, a mate, James Allison, coming on uh, to Great. as part of the Nonviolent Atonement series. Um, and he, he talks about um, that God not only loves us he likes us is that part of what you're getting like the stumbling block of a god who actually wants to hang out spend time um rather than love being that much that um 
Is that some of the what, what you're getting at? Maybe, maybe. Uh, I'm coming at it from a different direction, of course, for, uh, from James Allison, but the Anglican poet George Herbert has been really important to me right mm. uh, throughout my life. Um, and if, if you know, that's a testimony Love, you wouldn't have heard in your church much growing up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's true, except from my mother, who, who sort of oh, um, gave me as much, uh, just as I got Jesus straight from my mother, I got George Herbert straight from her too. Um, but yes, we were, we were the atypical Pentecostal family on, uh, on Magnetic Island. Um, if you know the last poem of his, of his collection, Love Three, Love Bad Me Welcome, Yet My Soul Grew Back, um, really what the poem shows and, and what much of Herbert's poetry shows is that the, the problem of sin, the problem of guilt, if you want to put it in psychological terms, is relatively trivial compared to the problem of shame. Uh, I'm not saying this ought to be normative, but that sort of described uh, my, my own experience. Mm -hmm. So yes, it wasn't so much that I had such a crushing sense of my own sin uh, and therefore not like Luther, where can I find a, a, a righteous God? How, how, can I, how can I be rid of my burden of guilt? It wasn't like the Pilgrim of, Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> it, was, it, it, it was more about how how can I adequately or properly open my heart to a love that is so disproportionate to anything I need or want mm. or deserve? I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask to be brought into the world and loved by the son of God, even unto the point of death. I don't particularly want that. That was my way of thinking. So that's a problem of shame, I suppose, a problem of not feeling worthy of, of this. Or yeah, you, you could say it's something like, knowing knowing that you are liked or at least it's not so much loving but but being willing to be loved mm. ben what i appreciate about what you've just articulated in terms of your own story is, is some of the particularities of um uh how the the theological um, and emotional landscape of australian christianities might be different to to other places um, and um, there's almost a, a lack of um, or, or a, a different uh, kind of uh, overlay of how certain things fall and the emotional impact of, of those things. Um, given that, how would you now articulate um, uh, both for yourself and Archie really, he's, he's saying amen as, as I ask you, um, you know, we um, both have dogs named Archie, by the way. I hope everyone understands that. We're like soulmates. In so many ways, Ben. Um, how would you now articulate um, uh, how Jesus saves? And part of like our deep desire to have uh, you on was also, um, how would you then articulate how um, the ancient church articulates such things? As I let Archie out. <laughs> Yeah, go for it, go for it. Um, I might save the ancient church one just for a second and just, just talk about it for me and we, we can come back to that, uh, to the ancient church. Um, here's what I don't think. I don't think that there is any kind of symmetry between a human predicament 
and a divinely given solution. When I speak of a symmetry, I mean, uh, I, I don't think of human beings having a need and God then finds a way to meet that need. In, in some classic ways of talking about the atonement, um, we incur a huge debt, for example. Sometimes it's penal language. Sometimes it's, um, it's uh, financial language. Uh, let's stick with the financial language. We've incurred a huge debt. Uh, we'll never be able to pay that debt, even if we, even if, even if for all eternity, unfortunately, where they're paying it out in the fires of hell, we'll never get to the bottom of it. We'll never uh, reach the end of our, of our financial servitude. Um, God looks around for a way to release us from the debt, but is so bound by rules um, uh, that God can't release us from that. So God looks for a way to pay the debt uh, on our behalf. Um, I don't want to totally invalidate every ingredient of that, of that um, picture, but I think the worst thing about it, in a way, the only part about it that truly offends me uh, is the idea of a, of, of a symmetry that what God comes to do in Christ is to supply something that was lacking to, um, to meet a need that we couldn't meet for ourselves. When, when Paul talks about the symmetry between Adam and Christ in Romans 5, the symmetry between death and life, um, one man's disobedience, one man's act of righteousness, uh, he starts by setting it up that way as a, as a heuristic device to help you think about who Christ is and what he's come to do. Come to do. Think of Adam, one act of disobedience that affected everybody, one sin that brought death to everybody. Um, he, he sets up the comparison and then pulls it away from you and says, but the trespass is not like the gift or the other way around. The gift is not like the trespass. Um, if, if, um, if, if many died through one man's, um, through one man's transgression, how much more will, uh, et cetera. And, and, as, and as Romans goes on, by the time you get to Romans 8, You've got this incredible, we started Romans with the problem of captivity to sin, to the power of sin, a, a universal human predicament. Um, and yes, we, we are freed from that. Thank God. Um, we die to sin, etc. But by the time you get to Romans 8, we are adopted as God's children. We share uh, God's spirit. We stand before God as if we were Jesus with the spirit saying, Abba, Father, through us. We're, we're on the inside of God's own, of the Father's own relationship to the Son. Uh, we are not only conquerors, but uh, super conquerors through him who loved us and, and so on. Um, the, 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 this is not, I'm not quite answering the question of what's the atonement mechanism, but, but I don't want any theology of the cross that balances out a human need with a divine solution. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm tempted to think there's, there's an old speculation in medieval theology, which goes like this, even if Adam had never sinned, forget that we're using, you know, somewhat mythological uh, terms. Um, even if Adam had never sinned, even if, even if human, uh, human beings had no need where, 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 
imagine we're sinless, we're immortal, we're eating from the tree of life and so on, would God still have become incarnate? It's just a speculation. Of course, there's no right answer to the question because the only world that exists is, is, is this broken one. Um, but I kind of like that speculation and I find it hard to, with any part of my mind, I find it hard to embrace the idea that the incarnation was a sort of plan B, that what God really wanted was for people to live in the world happily. And unfortunately, God had to come and be united to human nature in the person of, of the son. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I can't help but think of the whole story of the Bible from creation to new creation, all intending uh, the union between God and humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so I guess, I guess the way I would think about the gospel, the, the, the cross is important. And maybe I could talk about the patristic thing in a second, but, mm. but I would place just as much weight on the incarnation, uh, the, the union between God and humanity in the person of, of Jesus Christ, a union that yes, cleanses us if we need cleansing that yes forgives us if we need forgiving that yes makes us lovable if we weren't lovable before but it's it fundamentally reaches far beyond that it's, it's a union in which we become the friends of god we become the sisters and brothers of jesus we become uh, divinized as as the ancient church said um raised up to a level that is beyond anything we could have needed you know um uh I feel like I'm rambling a bit on that point, but but I, I would want to emphasize the incarnation. I would want to emphasize the resurrection. I would want to emphasize um, uh, our adoption into God's family, and and the way sin and guilt uh, bundled into that process is is important, but is not what the whole whole big story is about. So I'm I'm curious. Um, obviously, this you know we we call this nonviolent atonements series, right? Um, and and using that language in the kind of broadest sense. Um, so this may not necessarily be the language that you use, but I mean you're very familiar with the way that penal substitutionary atonement um, depicts often a God that demands punishment and torture and and even demands death, right? Um, so I'm curious about where you and or ancient Christianity um, would start in articulating what we're calling a nonviolent atonement. Yeah. Okay. Well, and so I haven't talked about the ancient stuff, but yeah, by the you way, you guys together. Well, you guys invited me to come and talk about ancient Christianity. So I, I should finally get around and say something about it. Um, here's there's many ways I could I could approach that, but let me just start with the concept of sacrifice. If I go back to my own childhood recollections, not that not that violence was the main feature, but definitely sacrifice, um, emotionally depicted scenes of sacrifice, um, and the logic of sacrifice, where there was something I deserved and someone else took my place uh, without asking me whether I thought that was a good idea. Um, what, it, it, I, I find it fascinating that it seems that in Western cultures today, we have moved to, we have embraced an overwhelmingly dark and gloomy and negative understanding of 
sacrifice. Sacrifice mm. is all about giving something up. Sacrifice is all about um, missing out on something. Sacrifice is all about, I don't know, a kind of immolation of, of, of the self. Um, and that's why I felt sorry for Jesus. He had given so much up without really deserving it. And, and one of the things that I've been impressed by reading uh, early Christian literature is they just don't see sacrifice in that way. Yeah. Um, Origen, the, the great third century uh, Alexandrian teacher, he has a series of sermons on the book of Leviticus, quite an amazing little book if, if you're interested in reading about this. And he goes through in these sermons and starts um, expounding all the different types of sacrifice in the book of Leviticus. And one of the sort of remarkable things about it is he just assumes, he doesn't even explain this, he just takes for granted that sacrifice is about joy. It's about mm. festivity. Um, a sacrifice fundamentally, um, and, and I think you could say this is true of the Old Testament scriptures as well, a sacrifice is not primarily about it's in fact i could just say it's not about the torture and dying of the victim it's about the meal mm -hmm. a, a sacrifice is a certain type of meal where the meat is barbecued and the aroma the smoke rises up and everyone uh takes joy in that aroma knowing that mm -hmm. there's a feat that they're going to be eating this right um uh, they don't, they're not throwing the meat to the dogs afterwards. They're, they're barbecuing it. They're rejoicing in the aroma. And even God, um, uh, in many places in, in uh, the Old Testament, even God sort of bends down as if, as if to close his eyes in pleasure and breathes in that aroma and feels pleased. Uh, Origen talks about this in his homilies on Leviticus, that, that sacrifice... Uh, of, of course, he, I shouldn't say of course, I, 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 just to uh, quickly add this little footnote, um, the early Christians also take it for granted and sometimes say emphatically, God never needs a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. God, you know, read the Psalms. All, all the cattle on a thousand hills are already God. You, you don't mm -hmm. have to bring some of your possessions to God as if God was missing out on that until now. Um uh, if I were hungry, says God, would I tell you? Uh, if I needed something, would I come down and, and ask you for it? Do you think you're doing something for God in that way? Um, uh, if, if anyone's read Homer, you, you'll know that the, the, the uh, ancient the Greek picture. Father of Lisa. Oh, okay. Yeah, the other, the other Homer. <laughs> the other Homer. Um, the, you know, there's, there's incredible scenes where... Um, the scene where Odysseus wants to get access to the underworld and they slay, they dig a trench in the ground. They slay an animal. The black blood spills out and fills the trench. And then these emaciated spirits from the underworld come writhing up out of the pit and down on their hands and knees lap up the blood. Uh, there, there, is, there are ancient conceptions of sacrifice in which these uh, invisible beings need blood and therefore blood has to be shed. Um, that is so far away from the Hebrew conception, the Israelite conception 
of declare a feast day, um, put the meat on the barbecue, gather around and smell the smoke. God rejoices in the smoke as well. Anyway, when, when you read, uh, and, and I mention origin sermons on Leviticus because it's, it's the most sustained, biggest text there is in early Christianity on, um, on the topic of sacrifice. It's a purely positive conception. Uh, our hearts, our lives are meant to be that meat on the barbecue. Not that we're going around slaying ourselves, but that we're that that's sort of passive. It's not that I'm dying and therefore God is pleased by my dying. Um, it's that a certain activity of the heart, I'm constantly um, lifting up my heart and my life in God's presence in, in the way Origen thinks about it. Um, so, so Ben, maybe as way of analogy, um, uh, those who have been to small country towns that have like a harvest fair or festival, um, that it's a communal event. Um, it, it's, it's something which is a celebration. The whole community is involved and um, it, it's a party. The, there's joy. Is, is that maybe something that's absolutely. A, approximate? Yeah. Uh, that, absolutely, that is approximate. Um, and this, I mean, this was, I suppose, sort of liberating for me to read material like this, given the, the childhood somber mood that, I, that I've described, where I always thought of, of what happened to Jesus as a tragedy, uh, as something really, really sad and disappointing and, and gloomy. Um, and to think even of to think even of of Jesus as you know if if the thing that creates this pleasing aroma is the dedication of a life to God, bending my life completely into alignment with God's will, then you can see how the whole life of Jesus, yes, his death as well, insofar as his death is a total in, in 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 death as in life he entrusts himself totally to the will of his father his food and drink is to do the will of the father um he he binds himself to god's will and won't deviate from it for a second no matter what the cost he he will proclaim the coming kingdom he will speak the truth um and he won't flinch away from his own death and there's a pleasing the way Origen talks about Jesus' sacrifice too, not something sad that's happening, definitely not some kind of weird division between the father and the son where the father slays the son in order to pay off some third party. Um, not that, but that the entire life of the son of God, everything that he is, is a pleasing aroma to God and that we too can become like that in our lives. You see how this is a positive, this is... Um, it's not the powerlessness of a victim. It's actually the power of praise, the power of bringing your life and um, presenting it before God and finding that God accepts it, is, 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 is pleased with it. Um, so that's, that's, one, that's one comment, I guess, about a, a place to look in patristic literature. Is that, is that helpful? Do you, want to, do you want me to say a bit more about atonement specifically? I don't mind. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it's in incredibly helpful, Ben. Uh, what I hear you doing um, and what I deeply uh, appreciate is you're almost, in, instead of combating where so many people um, have experienced um, uh, penis substitutionary atonement, you're inviting us into a completely different paradigm 
to reimagine these things. And I'm sure that for some people, as they hear these different pieces, they're like, all oh, right. So in Hebrews, the joy set before him, I see where Ben's going. That makes sense of uh, these different pieces um, moving around. As these pieces are moving around for people, I'm sure there's some people that are like, yeah, but like it's execution. It, it's horrific. Um what does it change from um, little Ben at six years old um, feeling those minor keys um, uh, to this now being a joyous thing? Um, uh, and, and so there are major keys now being played on Friday in light of Sunday instead of a, a Sunday coming kind of service that, that's a follow-up. Would you fill in some of the implications of... Um, because I know you're not just saying we should feel happy about this horrific event. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I don't mean that the death of Jesus on the cross um, is this thing that pleases and, and delights God. I I mean that the that the life of Jesus, the being of Jesus, the yeah, ev all that Jesus says and does and is is a pleasing aroma to to the Father. His whole life is yes to the Father, uh, even to the point of. Uh, of death i still think and perhaps i could say this um by the way you can ask james allison about this uh but but one reason why one reason why i am not super compelled by the girardian response to Ooh. uh let's say to penal substitution reading this is just a side this note is maybe the most controversial thing you've thrown out so far ben okay one reason i'm not super convinced of it i think it's still completely takes over this picture that sacrifice is a solution to a problem that it's uh -huh. a negative um that that it is about killing and death and not about feasting and and rejoicing i'm not saying it's totally wrong but 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 i feel like it it i, I feel like the Girardian accounts has something to learn from the ancient christians as well yep. who who just don't make those assumptions at all um, that violence is at the bottom of everything and that you uh, that, that what the world fundamentally needs is a mechanism for a, a, a particular mechanism for for interrupting the cycle of of uh, violence right um, so almost the cre creation um, I was going to say um, the, to, to go back to the um, colored picture book thing there's a danger for some Gerardians that um the story starts in genesis 4 with cain killing abel and this is the foundation of civilization um you want to make sure that there's something um below abel's body like there, there is a, a goodness still that is deeper than just these dynamics and i guess uh, one of the danger with Gerardian stuff is that it just becomes um uh, nothing in reality is affected other than our knowledge of these dynamics so it can the take analysis. on a, a gnostic and yeah totally true that it just becomes a but what i hear you saying is that um no no in, in um uh, christian antiquity there is something that um the, the nature of all things is not just we haven't turned it on and off <laughs> it's not working Let, let's reset everything and reboot the factory settings but there is something more beautiful on the other side um of what's been revealed in the incarnation. Is that something of where you're going? Yeah, oh, well, if you think of the picture you gave before, the analogy of the small town uh, celebrating harvest with festivals and so on, there are uh, there is a sense in which creation itself, you know, the first thing God does having created the world 
is celebrates the Sabbath. Creation itself is bound to a cycle of rejoicing, of, of, mm. of festival. Um, uh, and that that is deeper than the cycles of violence, which, which I'm not denying that, that these exist, but that at the deepest bottom of reality um, is the goodness of the creator. Um, Origin, just to say one more thing about sacrifice. In, in his homilies, Origen posits that all sacrifice, many sacrifices in Leviticus, um, uh, the institutions of sacrifice, the different people involved, the different agencies involved, he assumes that all of it should be interpreted under the banner of that, uh, that verse from the Psalms. We bring a sacrifice of praise uh-huh. under the house of the Lord. Interestingly, we sung a version of that in the church where I uh, grew up. Some of you might, might know that one. Um, we bring a sacrifice of praise. So he assumes that sacrifice is praise. It's a movement of the heart. It's about rejoicing, about freedom, about life. It's an act in which the entire community, um, and this is quite crucial to the way early Christians thought about sacrifice. It's an act in which one person, the priest, does something vicariously for everybody. Not, in that, not primarily in that vicarious way of, of turning aside wrath or of, um, of providing an outlet for um, uh, mimetic violence, but that the whole community unites its will, its heart, its mind in an act of the praise of God through the person of the priest. So anyway, it's, it's, quite, a different, um, it's quite a different paradigm. You asked me to talk about something different, though, and I said Girard would be a footnote. What was the other thing you were asking me to <laughs> well, talk about? Uh, I've completely forgotten. If you don't mind, like um, one of the things that is sparking for me is that um, maybe sometimes um, in liberation theologies, because um, the the oppression, the injustice is so um, uh, all-encompassing that there is a danger that we start um, from the exodus rather than a goodness that was prior to. Um, is that part of what, um, uh, so questions are coming up for me is uh, like, what would liberation theologies um, that have a a deeper sense of um, an original goodness and um, a um, extravagant, um, uh, you know, grotesquely extravagant goodness on the other side of redemption look like as well? Is is that part of the... um, ancient Christian kind of pushback? I think there's such a, I can't claim to speak for anybody's uh, liberation theology. And I, I, I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to come across as if I've got a better way of, of doing this. I think theology is not, <laughs> it's not about having the perfect system that does everything right. Theology is more about saying what needs to be said here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, even things that are only half truths are sometimes the truest things to say in a particular circumstance. So I don't, I don't yeah. want to, um, I, 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 I don't, I don't want to uh, lose the importance of that. Um, but here's what I think you find in early Christianity that's, that, that is just really helpful: pure, unadulterated, undiluted full-on monotheism by monotheism (laughs) i mean there is no ultimate struggle between god and anything else Uh there is no ultimate battle 
going on. The Exodus narrative is not the God of the Israelites engaged in struggle against the gods of the Egyptians. The gods of the Egyptians in, in I'm not trying to be respect, disrespectful to, to uh, uh, Egyptians, but in, in the Hebrew narrative, the gods of the Egyptians are a joke. They're, they're a plaything. It's, it's a complete it's, it's a complete sort of rhetorical game that God is playing um, uh, with them. Uh, monotheism means that, um, you know, we struggle. So you get this pretty strongly in early Christianity. We struggle against the powers of this world. Um, we struggle against the principalities. Um, we struggle against uh, the devil and his uh, dominions. Um, we we are engaged. Even the angels are engaged in in warfare and battle sometimes in early Christian writing, but not God. And mm. because not God, wow. because you if you've got a principle of monotheism, it gives you a way. I, I, I don't know how this sort of I, I'm not trying to say this. I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how this patches on to liberation theology like you were talking about. But but I think it is very empowering potentially very liberating um to see the world in terms of yes there are there are rivalries and skirmishes and battles that might embroil my life but none of them are ultimate um the eschatological element becomes absolutely absolutely secure and um uh the is, is, is this helpful? Do you see what I'm, I'm Yeah, totally. What I'm um, I, I think, um, and, and Drew, I am aware that we were uh, about to ask um, Ben um, uh, about the passages that are most helpful and, and to open that up some. But I think this, um, uh, before you came on, Ben, Drew and I were discussing um, Alun's um, Christus Victor, which I read in like, um, 2004 and was like hugely permission giving for me to leave some stuff behind and it was you that kind of taught me that he was way wrong about a whole bunch of stuff and um drew one of his supervisors for his phd um j denny weaver um who's the nonviolent atonement kind of responds to um his narrative christus victor is somewhat of a response to uh, Alun's uh, like a picture. Cosmological, right. Yeah. Um, um, would you break down what he gets wrong? Because I think it's directly related to what you were just saying, right? That um, Yeah. I, I mean, maybe, maybe this book is an example of sometimes even, uh, sometimes it can be, the, the timing can, can be everything. I think that book is so profoundly problematic, so profoundly un- <laughs> untrue unsubstantiated <laughs> in what it claims um but i don't want to deny it was a helpful book mm. here's why it was helpful um uh, gustav Aline was was very heavily involved in the um ecumenical movement and the ecumenical aspirations of the early 20th century um he was uh he, he had reached the conclusion that uh, so he, he was a Lutheran I forgot to say that Lutheran um, theologian um, and, and if we were convinced... to stereotype Lutheran theologians when it comes to the atonement they like it when it doesn't make sense right 
Maybe there's definitely plenty of room for uh, paradox and contradiction in in Luther's in in Luther's own thinking. Mm. Um, but I think Aline saw this problem. He's involved in ecumenical discussions with uh, Catholic, with Protestants, with Orthodox, and he realizes that the diff the theological soteriological differences between Catholic and Protestant are unresolvable. The whole way that things being set up is completely oppositional. One has to be right, one has to be wrong. Um, and he thinks that this, that the atonement is central to this and that it's going to block any, he's, he's, a, he's a churchman and he's looking for something that will open the way for ecumenical um, relationships. So what he does in, in a stroke of tactical genius, even if it's completely, nearly completely false, he creates a historical narrative in this book, Christus Victor, that stitches together Luther, the theology of the Protestant Reformation, with Greek patristic orthodoxy. Mm. Um, and he claims that they are both the same thing. Um, in other words, we can, but, but he, he brings Luther in for support. What he's actually claiming is the Greek Orthodox patristic view is the authentic Christian one. Even Luther agrees with it. Um, and what he's trying to do is, is to, is to break out of the contemporary intractable, intractable debates, find some new shared common ground that can bring Christians together in a shared confession. In fact, there was a big ecumenical gathering I think during the 30s, called Christus Victor. Uh, he was he was a key person in trying to push this stuff. Um, here's why the account's not true, though. His Christus Victor theory says that, according to the ancient uh, Greek Church, salvation doesn't come through a penal substitutionary mechanism. It doesn't come through imitation, which he sets up as another possibility. You could say it's like the conservative Protestant and the liberal Protestant view mm -hmm. that he. Uh, sets up there instead there is a cosmic struggle between god and the devil and that the the death of jesus is god's way of defeating this powerful victor it involves an element of trickery if anyone has read gregory of Nyssa's um catechetical mm -hmm. oration god uses the body of jesus like bait on a hook tricks the devil into swallowing it um and this is God's way of defeating Satan and the, and the cosmic powers. Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. Um, it's, it's wrong because it completely um, uh, really destroys the basis of monotheism, which is the absolute underpinning principle of Israelite faith, the faith of the New Testament, the faith of Jesus, the faith of the ancient church um so it, it makes the mistake of thinking that pharaoh's gods are real not even and and that and that they're on par god, with god to, to <laughs> yeah, actually struggle that's, with that's god. right yeah. like god is god is stronger yippee but it's still a protracted struggle it still takes effort i think if if for example you were trying to have some kind of liberation theology harnessed to this I would find that a terrifying prospect 
because who mm. knows what the outcome is going to be. We're, we're, we're hoping it's going to turn out well. We know that even where God doesn't have superior strength, he has superior de uh, deceitful uh, strategies. So ho hopefully we'll win. Uh, but this is not the way that there is literally no early Christian writer who thinks about salvation, anything like this. Um, I, I have a paper on this that, that's, that some of you might have seen called the, the patristic atonement model that talks a bit about this. But there are some sermons um, uh, from the ancient um, Syrian church, some mm -hmm. sermons about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, where the, the whole sort of joke of it is Satan thinks that he's doing battle against the son of God. Uh, the son of God is just sort of smiling to himself and shaking his head. Um, uh, th there's no combat going on here. The son of God is not tempted in, in in quote marks, Satan tempts him. Satan puts forward something to him. We're not to imagine that Jesus was inwardly torn. Oh yeah. Should I, uh, can you give me 24 hours to think about it? I, I, I'm not sure if I should turn these stones in, into bread. His inward resolve, he, he, his, he, he lives to do the will of his father. Jesus is not psychologically halfway to agreeing with the devil. Uh, <laughs> in other words, one of the parties thinks that it's a battle. The other one knows that it's not. This is a this is a position of absolute superiority. One of these is the creator. That's the whole joke, right? How do you mm -hmm. how are you going to struggle against the one who literally is the divine logos that is holding you in being right at this moment? Even if you're the devil, you you exist because of his will and his wisdom and his power. Um, so that that's that's a brief sort of rant about uh gustav gustav aline's book uh, i i really think it's unhelpful um e even though i'm sim not unsympathetic to I, I still think it's kind of a good idea to say yeah one of the problems with catholics and protestants is that they're not orthodox i, I think there's there is a lot to say for that the, not not ecclesiologically so much but theologically no. Yeah, yeah, uh, right, it just right. break, breaks you out of these post 16th century, rather arid legalistic debates to to to, to plunge yourself back into an earlier, um, uh, an earlier world where, for example, penal categories were were just not on nearly anybody's mind at all. Hmm. Um, but what is interesting when I hear you talk about this in your work overall is, I mean, I'm just thinking about the the impacts that Allen has had, that his framing on Chris's Victor has had on scholars, right? Broadly, deeply, and I mean, funneled down. I mean, that's all I had received for a very long time. And so, I mean, I, it's just such a controlling narrative in terms of an atonement theology um, discussions. And so um, you're really in many ways busting up the whole conversation altogether of what has become so ingrained in the conversation without people actually looking at what these ancient Christians are actually saying. Yeah. And, and I think I know why it's been so influential. Partly, I think it's because of this very early reception where it was a, it was a big deal in ecumenical circles. So I think it's spread rapidly through mm. clergy from different church traditions. I, I think that's part of the history of why this very strange, almost Manichaean, tracked ever had this enduring appeal but i think that the, the theological reason is you've clearly it's clearly pointing to 
I don't know, I think of that book as a kind of somewhat soiled band-aid, which if you rip it away, you <laughs> see something even worse underneath, that there's clearly a lot of people who've been taught a picture of the atonement, which is so uh, morally yes. and... Uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say unsatisfying, but, 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 but so... so so troubling think of the way the father and the son get split into two different yep. agencies for example um that must be part of the appeal if 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 we've got a deeply unsatisfying language for talking about the atonement and someone comes along no, and says no there's pun a intended ben what did what did i say no uh, deeply unsatisfying Oh yeah, unsatisfying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> unsatisfactory. Um, it's it's no wonder then that if someone comes along with something that is in fact rank Manichaean nightmare world cosmology, it still sounds better. Why? Uh, well, I've still you've still got a good god there. You've still that Christus Victor God is still good. He, that that god is on the side of justice um, and against the devil and against wrath and against um uh, it's not a god who is actively engaging in the business of killing and death for for uh obscure um rational purposes so yeah that's that's the lesson to me it's it's a sad the success of that book drew i think is just a sad reflection on the other alternatives out there then um I mean, we can go anywhere you want to go. I have so many questions firing um, for me, but uh, what we sent you and what we usually do is ask people what passages are most unhelpful. Um, you wanting to reframe us in a completely different imagination um, ha have encouraged us to go with the passages which are more helpful, that uh, rearrange those pieces in ways that are, are more beautiful. W what are those passages that you often um, take students to? um thanks jared um i've mentioned one that's been really important for for me and i think for the way i teach theology that's romans 5 and i guess i could say romans mm -hmm. 5 through 8 um a, a conception of i think paul does sort of start with the problem of sin but it's not that individual moral burden that i was talking about yeah. before this is part of what i was missing as a kid I felt that everything the death of Jesus, everything Jesus came to do was about fixing up my own individual failings. And that creates this weird burden where I, I'm actually willfully, deliberately learning to cultivate a sense of guilt, even when I've done nothing wrong yet. Um, but the, the Pauline picture of, you could say, capital S sin, sin as a power that holds uh, the human race in captivity sin as a power that you could actually say holds us in captivities splits us up into different parties and different groups um yeah. keeps us divided from one another keeps us um subjugated that the death of christ on the one hand is positioned in, in romans as a solution to this but then paul sort of soars beyond that he's just getting started uh this is about adoption as sons. This is about Abba Father. This is about, uh, as I said, not just uh, being conquerors, but more than conquerors. Um, um, this is about a love that surpasses height and depth, um, 
uh, things present, things to come, everything in all creation, that extraordinary soaring, unifying vision of uh, a world that has been subjugated to sinister powers and is now, as it were, subjugated or rather sort of flooded and filled with, um, with the power of God's grace in Jesus Christ. That, mm. that, I think, has been important to me, not just for individual words and concepts, but for that sort of big arc, for the, for the, yeah. the, the goodness of the, of, of the good news. Um, um, and I guess one more thing that comes to mind, the, because I was talking about sacrifice uh, before, I think I, I really do find myself agreeing with the early Christians who, who say um, it's not as if it, it's, it's not as if even when God, even when God gave Israel a sacrificial system in Leviticus, an entire, you know, temples, priests, sacrifices, uh, rules, purity codes, etc. It's not as if God ever intrinsically needed that stuff or even wanted it mm. uh, what god wants is a holy people what god wants is to be present um uh among the covenant people of of israel um if because of their particular historical environment and their history and 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 where they come from if the only way they can access that if the only way they can get their minds and hearts around it is by barbecuing animals and having, in fact, not doing it yourself, but have someone else do it for you. Like if that's what you need in order to grasp the truth of this, fine, I'll give you it. A, a bit like when God grudgingly agrees to give them a king, you know? Mm -hmm. Sure, uh, there's no intrinsic necessity in the divine plan for, uh, for kingship. But if, if you can't get your mind around it um, in any other way, okay, eventually, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, a king. If... So passages that, I don't know, this, give, this, this is pretty much how people like Athanasius and Origen are, are um, engaging with sacrificial material in, in the Old Testament. Um, not as if the, they, they spiritualize it in a sense that what it's really about is the sacrifice of praise. What it's really about is the heart of a covenant people um, that is uh, constantly moving towards God and, and, and being lifted up towards God. Um, so those, those prophetic Psalms um, in which God, um, the, do I have time to quickly read a verse, Jared? Then, Am I going um, over time or what's going we, on? We will keep you all day if you want to hang around. Like um, I, I will give people some time to ask some questions um, in a, a little bit. I have so much um, uh, firing in my head, but you do whatever you want to do, Ben. We're, we're here for it. All right. I've got to read a verse because I, I find this important for, for thinking. I, I don't personally, I've, I've still got enough of that Jesus people, Pentecostal, blood flowing in my veins i don't want to say that any part of the bible is unhelpful or, or, or bad or damaging or it, it this it this is this is god's good word um if it's the word of a good god then i want to be able to understand how it always points to the goodness of god and and thinking about sacrifice as a, a, a sort of 
picture that God gave Israel um, because they needed it, not because God needs sacrifice. So a psalm like this helps me with it. Uh, psalm, psalm 50, verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept the bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every wild animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the most high. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me, um, and, and so on. And then this is Psalm 50. You, you, know, you know the editors paired it then with Psalm 51, the, the great psalm of penitence, where, um, where the singer says um, the sacrifice of um, the sacrifice. He, he, he uses this language. You don't desire bloodshed, but the sacrifice of the, of the broken heart. Um, anyway, a psalm like that, this, uh, a, a, a psalm that turns into the spirit of the prophets comes through in, in, in these Psalms um, where the sacrificial system, the logic of sacrifice does find a place as an outward expression of this movement of the heart, this sacrifice of praise and uh, thanksgiving. That's, that's been important for me as well, I guess, in, in being able to say uh, yes to Leviticus for what it shows about the real purposes of God um, a holy God who is intent on forming a covenant community. Mm. So there's a couple, I could say more, but there's a couple of examples. That's good. That's good. So in, as, as much as I love um, these early Christian writers and thinkers, sometimes it feels like um, some of what they're saying is, hovering a little bit above our everyday lives. And I'm curious um, how, when we're thinking about theologies that accommodate violence and injustice and white supremacy and patriarchy, right? All these things, um, where do you start um, with um, challenging those kinds of theologies? Yeah, great question. I don't have any easy answer for this one. And, and I don't think there's always a straight line between a person's theology, let's say, and their politics or their way of inhabiting the world. Um, I think that all gets uh, pretty complicated. But I could I could say a couple of things. I think I think that again, I, if I can point back to the incarnation, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to, to God, that the word uh, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. I think if we have a, a, a soteriology that moves from incarnation through uh, the life and ministry of Jesus, through his death and rising again and ascension, um, if, if incarnation is sort of providing the, the um, underpinning, not, not that there's this um, random divine event that happens one day on, on the cross, 
uh, but that's in some way God's purposes for creation and God's purposes for the human race are beginning to be fulfilled in the incarnation of the Logos. Um, I think somehow I, I, I intuit this, I think, more than being able to argue for it, but, but somehow it seems to me that that gives you a richer language and a richer set of levers that you can pull in terms of uh, affirming the goodness and the dignity of um, human life, um, the dignity of the human body, the, um, the fragility as well of everything human in this world. Uh, the, th there's a beautiful passage in Irenaeus where he says that any possible stage of human life has been touched and healed and sanctified by the incarnation. So that because, uh, because the Logos has become a little child, childhood is now sanctified. Because the Logos has become uh, a youth, youth is now sanctified. Because the Logos has aged, the process of aging is now sanctified. I feel like there's, there's a... There's a um, it, there's a, there's a sort of incarnational logic there that can be extended to, to thinking about different uh, aspects and dimensions of the human uh, experience, um, all of which are in some way touched and embraced and potentially healed and reconciled to God through the incarnation. So I, I, I find that helpful. Um, uh, I think as well, if, if we don't have a theology that rushes ahead to the cross, it gives more scope to just for, you know, the good old fashioned imitation of Christ sort of mm -hmm. ethic where the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the, 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 um, the way Jesus, not just the way Jesus ends his life, but the way he carries out and conducts his life, um, yeah. the, the, the people he befriends and associates with, the people he rebukes and uh, condemns. Um, the people he touches and, and heals, the, the, the way he moves through and around um, his, the, 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 the barriers of, of, of the society that he's living in, um, constantly lord over it in, in a weird way, constantly showing his, his lordly freedom over the barriers and constraints that to everybody else seem so fixed. There's something there as well, I think. If, if we've got a theology that moves from the incarnation, then the, the life of Jesus as it's portrayed in the Gospels becomes much more available as, as, a, as a resource yeah. for, for living today. Not only for Christians, by the way, you know, some of the, mm -hmm. some of the most impressive ways of, of actually putting this stuff into action are not even by people who confess Jesus as Lord, but, but yeah. people who encounter the Jesus of the Gospels and say there's something here that is so close to the source of reality that 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 mm. so touches the nerve of what it means to be human that I, I I need to attach my life to this I need to bind my life to this in some way um, uh, and maybe just one more thing that comes to mind has anyone read William William Stringfellow mm -hmm. sure quite quite a um, quite a character I, I won't sort of put him forward as my favorite of all uh, Christian <laughs> theologians quite quite limited in some ways in, in in his sort of vision but here's what he takes away there's one idea that comes through pretty much all his books and i think is quite potent and this comes straight out of the ancient church straight out of athanasius and, and the martyrs and so on and that is this 
because Christ's death and resurrection, if they're a response to anything, it's a response to human mortality, even before it's a response to human sin. Um, because Christ has triumphed over death and in, as he has been raised, he's embraced us and taken him, taken us with him. Because of that, William Stringfellow says, the marvelous, amazing, unheard of fact about Christian disciples, disciples of Jesus, is that they don't have to be afraid to die anymore. And he has a whole kind of um, larger than life sort of analysis of principalities and powers, um, institutions, um, structures, ways of organizing our lives that, where we are constantly trying to find ways to secure a place in this world, constantly trying to find ways to compensate for our fragility and mortality, um, constantly fleeing from the thought and denying the thought that we won't always be here, that the world was here without us and it will be here without us and it doesn't need us. Um, and Stringfellow sort of brings into that uh, the power of the resurrection of Christ teaching us what, whatever happens in this life, there's one non-negotiable that you don't need to be afraid to die. And if you don't need to be afraid to die, what else are you going to be afraid of? Because all fears are, are, are only, the only thing we're afraid of is death, really. All fears sort of partake of the big fear, the fear of death. I'm scared of spiders. Why? Because they could kill me. Um, once Christ frees me from this enslavement to the fear of death, in Stringfellow's argument, it, it sort of sets me free to live the kind of radically obedient life that where, where I don't have to go sharing my allegiance around in a hundred different directions, always hoping that things won't kill me anymore. I'm sorry if that sounds a bit obscure, but, but read, read Stringfellow if, if anyone's interested in mm -hmm. following that up. I, I think it's a, a quite provocative way of, of extending the logic of early Christian thought into the context of, of, um, uh, you know, modern politics and so on. Mm. So Ben, um, I have so many questions, um, and to give you a taste test of some, I'd really, I'd love. I've to been talk trying to, to glance at them in the chat, by the way, but I just cannot keep up with them. And some of them were about <laughs> forming a, a band and stuff like that. And I, I've, I've been trying, but got to just ignore the it. chat. They're out of control, you know. They can't help themselves. <laughs> no, I love it. It's it, the best part. It's a bit. It's a bit like um speaking speaking in tongues in in the meeting. There will be some things that raise to a surface and minister to all, and other things which will just be noise in the background. So that, that's how we kind of relate to the chat. Um, uh, I, I want to ask about um. Uh, your reading of uh, the Cappadocians and how they would be down with Bonhoeffer's only a suffering God can help us now. Um, uh, I, I want to ask um, about uh, process theology um, and um, ancient Christianity and your take and, and um, what, what you think um, around that. Um, uh, following on from the Stringfellow, um, so Stringfellow was a major influence on Walter Wink, who was the first person who ever got me published and was very kind to me and a major influence on, on me. Um, uh, yet so much of their um, program has been, uh, well, Wink certainly, um, demythologizing uh, Alun's <laughs> stuff that he got wrong. And so um, to almost strip back um, the powers, both in a way that um, to moderns or postmoderns, um, uh, talk of uh, angelic beings wouldn't seem silly, but 
I also have questions in terms of, um, is it also demoting them so that we don't, um, uh, you taught me about the romantics in the 18th, 19th century and uh, their take on um, demons and how they almost uh, uh, admired them because they're, they were set above and yet you're like, no, no, the whole point of ancient Christianity was saying they're just creatures, they're, they're, not, they're not playing the same game. Um, but I will hold those questions and uh, open it Thank up Thank heavens, because that, that did sound like a lot, so I'm glad. <laughs> friends um we would now like to open it up to to everybody um else in terms of what what questions are on top for you while while ben has time um and so who, who would love to kick us off oh ben i might ask as people gather their thoughts um so in terms of the podcast this is the point where we actually uh, um uh, press pause and all the questions will go up for those who are part of the larger inverse community on our patreon um, but we've been saying weekly that uh, as as fascinating as all this theological speculation is that this touches like deep things within us um, that th this has got to do with our own experience of um, violence um, uh, oppression uh, abuse like uh, all kinds of things that and a seeking a God that is as good as what we see in Jesus. So with that in mind, would you mind um, leading us in prayer? And uh, then we'll come back to the Q&A time. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the goodness of your word, the word that was with you from the beginning and that has come and tabernacled with us we thank you for the uh the, the uh for how close you have drawn to us uniting yourself to everything that makes us human and not holding one part of us at a distance from your loving embrace we lift up our hearts and lives to you half-heartedly sometimes tentatively sometimes filled with questions and fears and doubts sometimes. But we ask that our lives would become a sacrifice of praise, that our words and thoughts and deeds would in some small way remind you of that beautiful, pleasing aroma that rose to heaven from the person of your son. We thank you for his life and death and rising again for the newness of life that we find in him for the joy and the victory and the anticipation that we share together through the spirit in him and we pray in his strong name amen, amen. thank you my friend the inverse podcast is proudly supported by you the listener and if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.